All right, good morning, everyone. We're in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take a Bible from the pew in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in your house, please take one of these Bibles with you more than anything else. Um, We would hate it if you left today and you didn't have the Bible in your home, so please take that with you. We're in John chapter 6. We're working our way through the whole book of John, and I think we spent like a month in John chapter 5, and so we wrapped up that, I guess, mini-study on just John chapter 5. We're moving forward now into John chapter 6, and whenever you're there, if you can stand with me, if you're able, out of reverence for God's Word, we will read this morning's passage together. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Pray with me. Father, we come before you today recognizing our need for you, recognizing not only our need in salvation, but even this morning as we open your word, we recognize our need for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, the same Holy Spirit that inspired John to record these words, the same Holy Spirit that we need this morning to open our ears, to receive them, to be taught by them, or that we would together come under submission to your word as your church, that we would glorify you, God, with the way that we live our lives, the way that we love one another, the way that we serve one another, and the way that we seek Christ, our Savior. Let us end this day loving Christ more dearly than we started it, Father. We thank you for your love for us and your grace and all of that that you have provided for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
My name is David Appel. My wife, Rachel, and I are members here at the church. It's really an honor for me to get to open the word with you all this morning, and I'm really excited to dig into this passage. And this happens, you'll notice at the beginning of verse 1, it says, after this, meaning after everything that happened in, verse, in chapter 5. Now, it didn't happen directly after that. By all accounts, comparing the other gospel accounts, because the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in every single gospel. And so by looking at the other gospel accounts, we know that this probably took place six months to a year after chapter 5. Most likely, this took place re, uh, very close after Jesus hears of the death of John the Baptist. So this comes in very close proximity to that. We know that this is an important miracle, like I said, because outside of the resurrection, it's the only uh, one that's recorded by every single gospel writer. So I, I pray that this morning we would try to pay special attention to this miracle because it is obviously important to us to recognize the power that is on display in this story. It's easy for this story, especially if we've grown up in the church, to go in one ear and out the other. Yeah, Jesus fed 5,000, whatever, that sounds cool, but it needs to mean something more to us than that, because the, the power that's on display here is really earth-shattering and earth-shaking, I guess I should say, and I pray that this morning that, would, that Jesus would be high and lifted up in our minds, that the power that he puts on display wouldn't just be another thing that we just add to a list and we don't dwell upon and we're not really astounded by. We ought to be astounded by the power that he has on display in this story. And so as Jesus and his disciples go to a remote part of the area, they go up on a mountain, not, not unlikely that they would be going there for a time of rest or a time of prayer as Jesus often went off by himself to pray. But probably 10,000 people, if not more, follow them there. And while these people are still far off, Jesus asks his disciples a question. Read with me in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, meaning 200 days' wages, or eight months' salary, worth of bread would not be enough to, for each of these people to get a taste or a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? This is an extremely relatable position uh, for me as I read the responses of Philip and Andrew, because... Every time we're presented with a challenge or an uncertainty in life, if you're anything like me, you don't immediately respond with perfect faith and obedience, right? Whenever we're left in a moment where we have absolutely no clue how God is going to provide or what's going to happen next, it's not like we all instantly, as much as we might like to, we don't instantly just say, yep, God, you could do it. You could take all these loaves and just make them and feed all these people. If anybody in here has perfect faith like that, I'm very jealous of you because that's not my response. Now, both of these disciples are trapped by the need that they see. And interestingly enough, Jesus is not trapped at all, right? Because Jesus even perceived this need before anyone else did. Nobody brings this need to Jesus. He brings it up to them. 
And even more amazing, he already saw the need and he already knew how he would fulfill the need. There's never a need that surprises Jesus and there's never a solution that surprises him either. He knows every need and he knows how he will fulfill every need. And at the same time, it feels odd to me that Jesus would kind of test Philip. I mean, as there's often, there, or I should say there's not often times in Scripture where it says specifically, God was doing this to test this person. But he, Jesus asks Philip a question just to test him, seemingly. And it might almost seem cruel for Jesus to do that, to ask a question that he already knows the answer to. But the reality is that when God tests us, when we are put in moments of stress and uncertainty, they're not moments meant to belittle us or to frustrate us or to lose us. They're actually moments to strengthen us and grow us and equip us. I mean, one commentary that I read this week says, when Christ is pleased to puzzle his people, it is only with a design to prove them. Now, to translate that, I think, out of like the 16th century it was written in, I would say when Christ is pleased to puzzle his people, it is only with a purpose to grow them. It's only with a purpose to strengthen them. It's only a purpose to prove to them that he will not leave them puzzled forever. Our Father puts us through these moments of faith and doubt, not merely to make us miserable and not merely for us to, to think about how, how horrible a disciple we are and not merely to recognize our own faultiness, but he puts us in these situations to prove to us his faithfulness. He doesn't put us through these situations to belittle us or to crush us. He puts us through these because they're opportunities for obedience in spite of uncertainty. Because God is in the habit of pushing us farther in faith and obedience. And if, our li- if, if Christ is active in our lives, then our lives should be characterized by growing obedience, growing faith over time. And God is in the habit of directing us, directing our circumstances, so that that goal of sanctification might be accomplished in us. But it's really comforting that we read in the scripture that God already knew what he would do. And, and so it is in our lives that even when we are tempted to doubt, we can rest assured that God will never push us farther than he will provide for us. He will never push us farther than he will provide for us. He'll never abandon us. He will never be surprised at the situation we're in. He will never be confused about what he's going to do. He will never be confused about what we should do or what he will do. Obedience will never lead us somewhere that God will leave us without his help. Obedience will never lead us somewhere that God will leave us without his help. Because God will never forget to provide for his children. Never forget to provide for his children. And if you know Christ this morning, take a minute to think about that, that God will never forget to provide for you. Especially, especially, particularly when we are living lives of faith and obedience. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, just a few books to the left in your Bible. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, says this. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It can be tempting for us to read that passage how we'd like to read it, and how many people in the church today that are really popular and really prominent would read those verses. They would like them to say, by all these things being added to us, that if we're faithful and obedient, then our bank accounts will always be growing and they'll always be multiplying. Our houses will get bigger and better every single time. Our health will get better and, and better and better and we'll never be sick. That we'll never experience discomfort. That we'll never experience pain. That's not what these verses are saying. Instead, these verses are a reminder to us that obedience is worth it because of the unchanging nature of God. Because honestly, sometimes seeking the kingdom first and sometimes being obedient puts you in a situation like Philip and Andrew where, where you have thousands of people to feed and you have no idea how to feed them. Sometimes obedience leads us to situations of anxious nights and, and hungry meals and tiny bank accounts and, and worried circumstances. And if we're never there, we're probably never being obedient in the first place. But it is a reminder that obedience is worth it because we have an unchanging and trustworthy God. The first thing that I think we can learn from this passage, from this miracle, is that we can be obedient because God will provide. Be obedient, God will provide. And honestly, much of our disobedience comes from the fact that we distrust God. So much of our disobedience, we don't think about it this way sometimes, but so much of our obedience comes from the fact that we actually distrust God. This was the very first temptation that Eve was hit with in the garden, right? Did God really provide everything that you needed? Are you sure God's not holding out on you? And you and I struggle with trust for God's word and God's plan, and so we look to other things to fulfill the needs that we think we have. We, we don't trust that God can provide for us everything that satisfies and everything that's good, and so we look to all of these other ways to get what will satisfy us. Instead of that, we need to continually turn ourselves back to the God that always provides. When we're tempted to disobey or delay obedience, <clears throat> Let's instead be obedient, knowing 
that God will never fail to provide. I'm tempted to think, not unlike Andrew does, I think it's a really relatable thing that Andrew says in this passage as he says, what, what are these in light of so many? What good is this? Yeah, we have some bread, but what good is that in light of how big this crowd is? One of the ways that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about this, excuse me, I'm good. <clears throat> One of the ways that this came to my mind this week is in the realm of trying to evangelize or speak about Christ to the people that we know. With our friends, with our coworkers, we can look at them and we can say, their heart is so hard, they are so far from God, how in the world can my measly witness do anything for them? How could, how, I mean, we know our faults, we know our shortcomings, we know that our coworkers, that our friends and family, they see them too, and we're sitting there like, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? What if, what if after I say this, the workplace gets really awkward and uncomfortable? What if this person just hates me after I say this? And in the end, what good will my witness do? What good is what obedience I have to offer in light of how big this is. Even more, what if we're confronted with a need to change our lifestyle or our family's lifestyle, the way that we spend our time and our money to really sacrifice them for the kingdom? We have to be able to trust that God will provide in those situations. So in those moments where we are tempted to distrust, let's instead be, mo- let's be people that live obediently, knowing that we serve a faithful and sovereign God. When we're tempted to not be obedient, when we're tempted to look for other things, let's instead entrust ourselves to God who's faithful and sovereign and good. And the question that I think we ought to ask ourselves is, is my life characterized by an obedience that demonstrates that I believe in a faithful God? Is my life characterized by an obedience that demonstrates my belief in a faithful God? Do I hedge my bets? Do I look my own way? Do I try to solve my own problems? The first thing to learn is that we need to be obedient, knowing that God will provide. The second thing we can learn is that we don't have to despair because God will provide. There's not a moment in the story where Christ doubted what he would do, or he failed to know his plan. And even in the moments of deepest despair that you and I go through, there's never a moment where God is at a loss for what to do. And there's never a moment where God is surprised by our need, and there's never a moment where he lacks the power to fill that need. Again, in Matthew 6, it says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's be a church that takes God at his word there and seeks his kingdom, gives up our lives to seek his kingdom, trusting that he will provide along the way. Because we have a choice to make. The reality is we all have a choice to make. We will either give ourselves in trust to seeking God's kingdom or we will try to get Christ 
to seek our kingdom. That's what we see in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're actually quoting a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses had given about the coming Messiah. And then in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You often, I, I think when I read this, sometimes I wonder why in the world would Jesus reject being king? After all, Jesus is king and he does deserve their worship. He does deserve to be made king in this moment. So why in the world, when they're actually going to make him king, why would he turn and, and walk away in that moment? It almost seems a little unfair, like they were going to do the right thing and Jesus stopped them from doing it. But whenever we think about why the Israelites are wanting to make him a king in this moment, we realize that they were far from the truth. They were far from honoring God in this moment. At this time, the Israelites were under Roman rule and authority, so they were not a sovereign country. And even more, this is during the time of Passover, which is the highest holiday on the Jewish calendar. So it's, it's not just a religious holiday for them, it's also a political holiday for them. This is a moment where their cultural and national pride is at an all-time high. The, the desire for them to be free of a ruling nation would be higher than it would ever be throughout the rest of the calendar. And into that moment steps a man who seems to have all power and all authority to do whatever he wants. And so they're like, yeah, let's make him king. This, this guy can get rid of the Romans. This is a great time to do it. Let's go ahead and take care of this right now. And so they want Christ to come and be an earthly king to overthrow the Romans, but that's not why Christ is there. And it scares me when I read that because there are so many people today who, just like the Israelites, can experience Christ, but they do not know him. We can experience Christ and still miss it. It is possible to think, this is what's so scary, it's possible to think of Jesus very highly and greatly and still not think of him rightly. It is possible for us to like church, to like Christianity, to like Jesus, to like certain things about him. It's possible for us to use Christianity as a way for us to kind of pacify our conscience, to kind of improve our lives a little bit, but to not realize that we need not just a prophet or a king, but that we need a priest, that we need a mediator between us and God. Because a prophet is merely someone that declares the truth to me, and a king can be someone that conquers my enemies for me, but a priest confronts the fact that I have sin. And so if we're missing out on that this morning, if we merely want Christ to be a prophet or a king for us, we have to recognize we don't get him unless he's also our priest. Because we don't get to remake Jesus into our image. We don't get to remake God or his word into our image. Because if we did, we would all end up with the same God. We would all end up with a God that gives everything to us and makes no demands of us. That's the God we would all like to have. And if that's the God that you have this morning, then you do not have the God of the Bible. 
And the danger is not that it's impossible for us to remake God in our image. The danger is that it is very, very easy for us to remake God into our image. It's very easy for us to do that. We do it all the time and hardly notice it. The reason that's so dangerous is that we will feel full and satisfied for a time, but we will have a Savior that cannot save us. If we get in the habit of cutting all the rough edges off of Jesus, if we get in the habit of remaking God to do all the things that we want but make no demands of us and never change us, and if we never come to really, if we think the sin part is kind of, we don't like that so much so we don't worry about that, then we are left with a Savior that might make us feel good today, but it is not a Savior that will save us. We will be left with ourselves as a Savior. But Jesus did not come to meet the desires of the Israelites. They were missing the truth that he is the provision for their eternal need. And him providing this bread is merely a picture of the fact that he is the bread of life. We'll study that in a few weeks and the rest of chapter 6. But he is the bread of life. He is the provision from God for us to fix the eternal need that we have. But again, the reason that is so hard for us to accept is because for us to accept that, we have to recognize our own sinfulness. Jesus came not to overthrow Romans, but to overthrow sin and death itself. And the good news is that Christ stepped off the throne of heaven to wear a cross that because of sin, you and I, all of us in this room, a cross, of, a cross that is rightfully earned by us because of our sin. And he didn't take the crown that they offered him that day because he was fitted for a crown of thorns that he would wear on the day where he absorbed all of the wrath of God that is due to you and I. All of the wrath of God, and this is available to anyone who calls in faith on the name of Christ. Think about that miracle, that Christ is the provision for you and I. He is our only hope, and he is the one who is the sure provider for us. Are we grateful today that all of our idolatry, all of our remaking God in our own image, all of our dishonesty, all of us trying to elevate ourselves to the place of God, all of our pride, all of our mutiny, all of our revolt against God, every single ounce of it and all of the wrath that went along with it was poured on the back of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And day by day, even more, he is faithful to provide for us and he will provide for us every day until that day when he comes again. Amen. Amen. Maranatha. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for the grace that you have provided. Lord, I pray that today we would find rest in the provision of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would all know what it means to experience Christ and to know him rightly. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in this room that 
does not know you, Lord, that you would awaken them to their need right now of a Savior, of a perfect Savior that is only Christ. Lord, I pray for those of us who know you to be people that live obediently and faithfully, trusting in your sovereign care. You would give us courage, Lord, to take this good news of this provision and bread of life to everyone that we know, that our coworkers, our friends, our families, every activity that we do, Lord, may it be in the service of the one who is our eternal provision. Lord, again, we thank you for this grace. We pray that every single day we would grow more and more grateful for it, and that it would have more and more evidence in our lives of its truth, of its reality. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.